Well, good morning. Welcome to the Summit. I'm Brian Agavino, the lead pastor. It's great to be with you as uh, we continue in the book of Mark. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. If you go to the summitstl.info, there's a card there called uh, Sermon Notes. You can click on that and you can follow along there as well, but everything will be on the screen. Let me read for us. Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray. Almighty, awesome God, this morning we ask that what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name, amen. So my senior year of high school, I took physics. I actually like math. It's kind of definitely my bent. I was not good on the English side. I was more on the math side. And physics is, lives definitely in the math world. It's an equations thing. You have to put stuff together, memorize different equations to make it all work. And so, but it is fairly difficult for those of you who have taken physics. And one of the beauty of taking physics for me was that my dad happened to be a double major in college, physics and math. Yeah, so good for me. Yeah, so he's kind of smart. And so anyway... uh, So I would have these moments where I would be like, I I don't really understand how to do this. So I would go to my dad, and I would say, Dad, help me with this. And my dad, what he would do is he would do this thing that still to this day would make me so mad. He would say, all right, all right, Brian, well, let's let's take a look at this and see if we can figure it out together. And and as a 17-year-old teenager, you know what was going on in my mind? Just show me how to do it. Just show me. And he would, you know, he would, and this was over a whole year of physics. Every time I went to him, he would just, he would slow down. He would try to help me figure it out. 
There's something in us, isn't there, that we just want to know how to do it. And I would argue, actually, that's an even more profound desire in our soul when it comes to spirituality. We just want someone to tell us, just tell me how to do it. Just tell me how this works. Just tell me what I have to do to know God, to have that peace, to have that joy. I I just want to know, Brian, and if you'll just stand up here and tell me how to do it, I'll do it. Well, today we're going to conclude really our first section of Mark. We've been in it through this fall, and we're coming to an interesting climactic moment, actually, in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to take a second to kind of help us understand what's happening here as we get to this Sabbath experience that's happening, because it's the background of the first three chapters that are really going to press us into what Jesus is trying to do in our lives as we are disrupted by what he's doing in the Sabbath encounter with the Pharisees. So so if I could, let me just draw us back through everything. Mark starts with this disruptive comment in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 where he says, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it doesn't let us think anything less than, wait, wait, something is really significant about this man. And then what happens is, Mark tells us there there are two things that really solidify or point to this statement he made, and that's his baptism, where God basically ordains him as his son, and then he resists the enemy, Satan, in the temptation. So we have this beautiful picture of what's happening here. And then what Mark does is he says, there's something that Jesus is going to do and declare as he comes into this world. And it's this very famous statement in Mark chapter 115 where he says, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. That what Jesus is doing is he's coming to bring this ultimate kingdom, this new kingdom that's breaking into the world, that's basically going to transform the way we understand everything about life. And then what Mark does is he, he kind of have these two little periscopes that uh, help us understand a little bit more about Jesus. And so the first thing that he does is he tells three healings. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man to show his power over the supernatural. Jesus heals a sick woman to show his power over sickness. And then Jesus heals a man with leprosy, a very significant disease that caused people to be ostracized in the community. Then Mark tells us of four significant controversies that Jesus breaks into. The first is Jesus heals a man who can't walk. Remember, his friends dropped him down, and he has this interesting statement where he says, what's harder to do? Is it harder to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? So he starts with this controversy, insinuating that he has the power to forgive sins. Then secondly, he moves into this interesting conversation about uh, fasting and what this means that you can should you fast, and that he's also pointing to this idea and this concept that he is actually the one who has come to to be the bride, that he is the Messiah. He's arguing this crazy thing. Then he calls Levi to come follow him, so a tax collector. So he's doing these incredibly controversial things. But now, Mark says, they're starting to watch him, but now the very last sentence that we read is they want to kill him. That something has happened, that they want to destroy Jesus because of this 
controversy about the Sabbath. Because for the, the Jews, the Sabbath, it was significant. There was something so significant that it made them take notice and it created this firestorm for them that, that actually led to this incredibly controversial decision, which we'll get to near the end. My hope and prayer for us this morning is that as we reflect on what Jesus is doing here and his interaction with the Jews, it, it will have the same somewhat impact in our lives, that it will really break into our hearts what he's teaching this morning in such a way that would set us free to transformation and rest. That, that we would discover this morning that he truly is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we might just actually have an answer to that longing in our soul to know, what do I need to do? Well, why did this conversation start such a firestorm? Let's start with the Sabbath dilemma, the Sabbath dilemma. So why, why is the Sabbath so significant for the Jews? It's, it's maybe worth just talking a little bit about why Sabbath matters to the Jewish culture. So really where Sabbath comes from for the Jews, I mean, yes, on the one hand it began because God rested on the seventh day. That's what it's connected to. But it's also intimately connected to the Exodus and the Jews coming out of Egypt. So in their, when they were in Egypt, before God gave them the Ten Commandments, so it's after they had escaped from Egypt that they got the Ten Commandments, the fourth one being rest on the Sabbath. They worked all the time. It was night and day, seven days a week. They were always working. And so when they come out of Egypt, God says to them, I want, this is who I am. I created rest. I want you to rest. And so on the seventh day, you will rest. And, and this concept really separated them from many other cultures in the world. It was something super significant that made them different from everybody else. And, and that was part of God's design, right? This is what separated them from the rest of the world. And so they saw the Sabbath as this very special thing unique to them. It's interesting, actually, that the Jewish culture today still considers the Sabbath very significant. So I recently had an opportunity to be a part of our bar mitzvah for a family friend of mine. I, I know a rabbi. His name is Rabbi Noah. And... Uh, his son was having his bar mitzvah, which I had the opportunity to go to. It was on a Saturday night, so at the end of Sabbath. And what they did, it was actually really pretty cool. They have this ceremony at the end of the Sabbath called Havala. And at the end of the Sabbath, I want, I want to tell you what they, what they did. It was really interesting. They're, they have three things, three uh, pieces that they use to celebrate the end of the Sabbath. The first thing they do is they drink wine, which is a symbol of joy to sanctify the moment that something beautiful has happened in their rest. Then they sniff spices to wake up gently to their earthly responsibilities. So they're smelling something to say, okay, we've been at rest, now it's time to do our work. And then they light a candle as the first fire of the new week is a sign that the time to begin creating has arrived. I was like, that's cool. Why do I tell you that? Because Sabbath mattered to the Jewish culture. It still matters. It's defining of who they are as a culture and a people. And what really happened in their understanding of Sabbath 
was there was this thing that started to creep in in their culture that they started to believe we're better because of Sabbath. We are more significant because of how we do Sabbath. And because they started to think about that, then they needed to ask the question, well, what do we do to keep the Sabbath? And there were a few people that decided, well, we're going to tell you what to do to know how to keep the Sabbath. To which point there were over 600 different rules that were made so people would understand, well, this is what you need to do in order to keep the Sabbath. So, so what Jesus is messing with is a big, big deal to this culture. When, when, when this happened, they were really upset about what Jesus was doing. They, they thought they were better than everybody, and now Jesus is kind of changing their perspective on what had happened. And without going deeply into all of this conversation, the, the reality is, is that what Jesus said is true, that they had lost sight of what the Sabbath was for. Have you ever lost sight of what something is for? You know, oftentimes, maybe not always, but often our defensiveness can be a sign of us having losing sight of what something is for. That we're making something more important than it is. We get defensive because we feel like we're doing it right and if that's how you're supposed to do it, it's how you're supposed to do it. And we don't want people to mess with us. <laughs> we, have a, we have a phrase for this in the church world. We call it the church police. You guys ever encountered the church police before? Yeah, I have. I know a few church police. They like to count how many times the pastor says Jesus on Sunday. They like to look at how people dress. They judge parenting styles. They work about, worry about church attendance and giving. They worry about what you're posting on social media, and they're deeply concerned about whether you're attending community group on a regular basis or not. You know, church police, they come in many forms, don't they? They're everywhere. And, and let's be fair... <laughs> The, the power of what Jesus is doing here is, I'm, I'm going to tell you what he's doing, and then I'm going to sh show you how hard it is for us to really grasp what he's doing. What he's saying to, to everyone who's coming in, in connection with him is he's saying, look, you don't have to be better anymore. I'm better than you, and that's all you need. But we live in this world, don't we, where we can be so easily critical of other people. Uh, I want you, if you would, just for a second, let's do an inventory. When is the last time you, this week, thought you were better than somebody or criticized someone for something that they had done? When, when was the last time you looked at somebody who wasn't holding to a standard that you thought should be held to? 
I mean, this is what was going on with the Pharisees. They were saying, look, this is the standard of Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do this, and this is what it means to do these things, and you need to do these things. You have to do it. I, I, had, a, I had a funny encounter this week. This is how sneaky this is, you guys. I, I was listening to someone complain about somebody, and I was just listening, and then I, I remember going into my office and thinking, yeah, I would never complain about people like that. And that's how sneaky this is. Like, this, is how, this is how easy it is for us to be people who are self-righteous and we feel like we're doing it right. And because we're doing it right, other people should do it the way we do it. And so when people who aren't doing it right, we think we're right because we're not doing it the way that they're doing it. And that in and of itself shows exactly what Jesus is trying to say. And he's saying, you're not at rest. There's a, there's a powerful invitation here from Jesus. And before I talk about what he's really offering, I just want to talk to maybe two people, if I can, for a second. And the first is to the church police. <laughs> um, I get you. <laughs> I easily go there. It's easy for us to be worried about who's going to defend Jesus. I, I sat in my office with somebody this week, and they were saying, if I don't do it, who will? And it actually made me sad to hear them say that, because it, it showed that there was this, this fear that Jesus wasn't able to be in control of his kingdom that's coming. And I would just humbly invite you to, to allow Jesus to show you a different way. And maybe secondly, and more importantly, uh, as a pastor, to those of you who have been impacted by the church police, to those of you who have been burdened with rules of righteousness so that you might belong. To those of you who have been arrested by the church police. Jesus is here to change the standard. He's the one who welcomes you with gentleness and lowliness of heart and invites you to stretch out your hands to him to find rest. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, let's see what Jesus does here in the midst of these two very significant encounters. First thing I want us to really notice here is what he says in the end of this first encounter. So he's with his disciples in their picking heads of grain. And at the very end, he says this really powerful statement. He says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. If you notice in the language here, there's this real emphasis on what Jesus is trying to declare. So two things he didn't say. He, he, he didn't say, so... 
when he's, when he's talking about who he is, he, he didn't say, I'm the Lord over the Sabbath. He didn't say that, that he's over it. He, he said, and he also didn't say, you'll see, he puts this real emphasis in here. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of, that, that there's like this emphasis he's saying that even of this thing that's so significant to you, I'm even of that I'm Lord of it. He's saying basically what he's trying to come into this, into this experience that the Pharisees have created for their culture, and he's saying, look, I am now the one to bring rest the way that man has been created to experience. So what he's done here, it's really interesting. So, and the Pharisees knew exactly what he was doing. It's kind of a bizarre story that he tells. We don't really know it that well. David, he's with his disciples. They're hungry. They pick grain. It's kind of a strange thing. It's on the Sabbath. Okay, what does it really matter? No one made a big deal about it. But Jesus telling that story, he basically is saying two things. He's saying, first, I'm on par with David, who for them was the ultimate. And not only is he on par with David, he's saying, but I now am the ultimate king to be enthroned. And they knew exactly what he was saying. It wasn't hidden. They knew what he was trying to declare, that he is now the one who can bring rest on the Sabbath. He is the one who can provide what the Sabbath is supposed to provide. If the Sabbath is about restoring, replenishing, and repairing, Jesus is saying, that's what I'm able to do. And then what he does is on this very next Sabbath, he has this encounter with a man with a withered hand, and he actually heals this man. He, he, he displays to them that he has this power not just to be the Lord of the Sabbath, but to declare to everybody that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That he is the one who can provide healing and grace and rest and replenishment. And that, that there is no more having to do to be made right. I wonder for us, are there ways that we as a church have gotten blinded to our commitment to what might appear to be necessary rules? that we fail to see God's healing and redemptive and restorative work in the lives of other people. You know, the second thing we see here that Jesus does is what happens at the very end of this. In verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, a little bit about the Herodians. We don't know a lot about the Herodians either, but let's just make this super easy. The Herodians were exactly the opposite of what the Jewish people were. So a very great parallel for me is it's Republicans and Democrats. Like they cannot be more opposite in how they see things. And actually it's a, it's a pretty powerful picture and example for me in this. Because here, here, here's, here's what it was, okay? One author put it this way, the Herodians... Now, I'm not, I'm, uh, <laughs> I have to be careful here. I'm not, I'm drawing a parallel, but it's just a parallel. I'm not saying anything about Republicans and Democrats, okay? Don't take this further than the analogy needs to go, okay? Herodians, they represented the Greek and Roman philosophy. They were cosmopolitan and pagan. 
they were exactly the opposite of the Pharisees. And the, and the Pharisees, they lived the Hebrew scriptures and they did everything they could to not be corrupted by the Herodians. So the, the Herodians were progressive and the Pharisees were conservative. And this is what happens at the end of this. They come together to try to destroy Jesus. And so what do we see here? This powerful, powerful picture. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to both religion and irreligion. It can't be co-opted by either moralism or relativism. Here's what's happening in this moment. I mean, this is, this is what Mark is trying to really disrupt our lives here. He's saying, listen, you guys, Jesus isn't just coming on the scene to be a nice guy, to bring some new philosophical way of thinking, and he's not coming on the scene to bring some moralistic way to live. Because the moralists wanted to kill him and the progressives wanted to kill him. They're both completely against him. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is beyond either of those ways of thinking. It's a completely different way of thinking because really moralism is all about self-righteousness and doing what's right in front of other people and progressivism is too. It's exactly the same thing. What we do is right and you need to do what we do or you can live like this. What we do is right and what we think is the way you should live. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who's ever lived right and in me you'll find rest. There is only one who is better. And it's me. And when you come under me, you don't have to work anymore. And my friends, my question to us all this morning is, do you want that rest? Do you want the freedom that he brings? Jesus is offering an invitation to everyone who's in his presence that there's no more need to prove yourself. No more need to compare yourself. No more need to defend yourself. No more need to try to find someone that you're better than. When you come to him, he's the Lord of the rest. The one to say, he says, I'm better, and in me, that's all you need. And don't our hearts say to that, yeah, yeah, I want that. So how do I do it? <laughs> right? Tell me how, Brian. Tell me how to find that rest. Tell me how to not compare myself. Tell me how to not be self-righteous. Tell me how not to be that, to, to just be someone who's at peace in who I am in Christ. Oh, that's the trick question of the whole Christian journey, isn't it? <laughs> There's a book that we read earlier this year called Gentle and Lowly. I would recommend it to you. It's really a book about this. It's a book about resting in who Jesus is. And at the very end of the book, I, I love how Dane Orland ends the book. He says this, so what are we to do now? What are we to do with this? The main answer, and this is what I would offer to you too this morning, the main answer is nothing. To ask, how do I apply this, which is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he's the one who gives rest, that in him I can find all that I need, to ask, how do I apply this to my life is like an Eskimo winning a vacation to a sunny place and arriving in his hotel room, sticking out onto the balcony and wondering, how do I apply this to my life? I love that beautiful picture. 
It's like an Eskimo stepping out the first time he's ever been into the British Virgin Islands and he's stepping out in a crystal clear blue water and he's on the balcony. He's like, so how do I do this? It, it, it is what we do in Christ, that we've been set free, that we no longer have to prove ourselves, that we've been given the ultimate rest in Christ and we go, mm, now what? Instead of just enjoying it. Ah, but how do I enjoy it, Brian? See, we always come back to the how. We always come back. I love you practical people. That's how practical I am too. I'll share with you guys an illustration that I saw Janet Bridgeforth. She's on our preaching cohort, a member here. She taught this in one of our classes, and I I thought it was a a powerful illustration to help us think through this. How, How can we think about this? How do we apply this? So, If we took, imagine a mom, imagine a mom. I want you to think about a mom who is really struggling. She's got two kids, doesn't have a lot of money, and really is desperate for a meal. And if I came up to her and I said, hey, I'd love to give you this $100, do you think she'd take it? Yes, she would take it. Of course she would. This is not a trick illustration. So she would take it and she would use it and it would be worth $100 to her. Now, imagine this same situation, this same woman, and if I were to take this $100, and I were to crumple it up, and I were to spit on it, I'm not gonna spit on it, but if I were to spit on it, stomp on it, rub it in some dirt, pour water on it, And say to her, do you want this $100 still? Do you think she would take it? Why? What determines the value of the $100? It's the outside source that determines the value. It's because... The United States Treasury has said no matter what's been done to this $100, here's what it's worth is. So even though it was taken advantage of, why is the $100 secure in its worth? Because its value and worth was determined by an outside source. And our value and worth isn't tied up in what you can do or can't do. It isn't tied up in what you have done or haven't done. Your value and worth is tied up in the one who has done and has accomplished and has said, It is finished. And in him, no matter what has been done to you, your value and worth cannot change. And he says to you, be at rest. Enjoy. Be at peace. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, I wonder if there's 
more meaning and depth to what we see Jesus say here. When you're prepping for sermons, you know, read passages, sometimes, a lot of times, sometimes not very many. I've been a while since I've had the opportunity to preach, so I've been reading this passage a lot of times, and I noticed something actually on Thursday as I was reading this again. I want to read to you how I was reading this. So, chapter 3, again, he entered a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, here's, here's how I was reading this. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. I wonder, this is pure speculation. I wonder how Jesus said, stretch out your hand. You know, as I was reading this, I was reading, and he looked around and with anger because I think he was so frustrated with how much people were putting weight on other people to try to find rest that, that he was saying. And he looked at them that he, and with anger and grieved at the hardness of heart that still in that, he looked at the man and he was like, stretch out your hand. Do you know that the root response of Jesus' hatred to sin is mercy. That I think when he looked at those Pharisees with anger and grief, he turned to that man with the utmost amount of peace and grace. And he said, Stretch out your hand. And it was all that the man could do but to stretch out his hands. And I wonder for us, church, if the how do I do it, Brian, is to hear Jesus say, stretch out your hands. (laughs) Stretch out your hands. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to be a people who would stretch out our hands and find rest. Help us remember that even if we've been the church police or if we've been burdened by the church police, our value is still beautiful because of what Jesus has done. And so when our hearts cry out to know what to do, Father, remind us that Jesus said, just stretch out your hands so that we might be reminded that he is better and that he is all we need. And might we find that reality today in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.